Me and my cousins. It's a podcast. Three guys, three decades, three perspectives. Me and my cousins. It's a podcast. Morgan Coffee Co. is a small batch coffee company out of Point Pleasant, New Jersey. They feature unique blends inspired by the Jersey Shore, and every month they feature a new single-origin coffee from around the world and their new Flavor of the Month Club. Bean Morgan Coffee Co. is giving our listeners 10% off all coffee and their recently released K-Cups. Visit Bean Morgan Coffee Co. and enter Cousins10 at checkout. Bean Morgan Coffee Co., the roast from the coast. What's up, everybody? It's time for another episode of the Me and My Cousins podcast. This is Angelo of the Cousins flying solo tonight. Mike and Kenny just couldn't make it happen this week, but we're going to hopefully make up for it with a sick guest. We got Dan Lamort. He's super funny. He's a touring comic. He's got albums on Spotify and all the streaming services. He has a, a really cool history of playing baseball at a very high level, and right now he's also ultra-marathoning at the same time as being a touring comic that performs all the time. So super funny, super in-depth interview with Dan Lamort coming up. Before we get to that, I want to shout out a couple of our past guests and friends of the show that are doing big things right now you guys need to know about. So the first one, my buddy Shore Shot, one of my favorite New Jersey rappers. I like really every song he's ever produced. Uh, he just released a song called Goodbye Love. It's on all the streaming services, and it's also being included in this week's episode of All American. It's a, it's a pretty big hit show. It's been on for a couple of years, and I know Sure Shot and his team has been trying to get placements in movies and TV for a while now, and I think that's their, maybe their first, but definitely their biggest placement of a song. So check out that song. Also, he kicks off his verse with a sick My Cousin Vinny reference. Uh, that If you remember that movie, he really just crushes that reference to get his verse going, and the, the song's typical Sure Shot and his crew, and they just crush it. On top of that uh two fit crazies brian prendergrass christine conti were on the show a couple weeks ago uh they completed their 100 mile challenge well christine completed all 100 miles brian unfortunately right before the event uh was exposed to covid and was not able to compete or complete that challenge uh but i, I could tell he's gonna do a 100 miler sometime soon and crush that because he was killing all the training followed on social media and super congrats to christine for knocking out that incredible goal and for an ultra marathoning again stay tuned to the end of the show we talked to dan lamore quite a bit about running distances longer than 26.2 miles. And then the last person we got to shout out, Caroline Davidson, Ghost Harbor Creative. She's been on this show before. She was gracious enough to host my roast battle with Sean McDonough. Uh, that uh, I did win, but Sean had some great lines, and he, he's a great comic. So super shout out to Sean McDonough as well. But um, she's going to host the first weekend of May the Crespi Family art exhibit at Ghost Harbor Creative. So Jeff Crespi is probably the most notable, in my opinion, the best photographer of the Jersey Shore Asbury Park music and art scene. Uh, he has two kids that are now artists. I know his daughter is a tattoo artist. I believe his son does visual art, and they're doing a family art show over at Ghost Harbor Creative. It's Sunday night for friends and family, and it's Monday for the general public. Definitely go out, check that out, and support a great venue in Ghost Harbor Creative, a great artist and a great photographer in Jeff Crespi and his two kids that are really starting to get their art off the ground and really pushing that direction. And we have Jeff Crespi on the show in a couple of weeks to talk about a couple things. Number one, how he got to start in art photography. Number two, what he's meant to the Asbury scene as far as documenting what's going on here for well over a decade. And number three, how he photographed the cover to my book, Stand Up and Laugh, available with Michael Cotton Publishing right now. You can find out more about that book right here. Stand Up and Laugh. Build a comedy scene, produce your own shows, and create community by Angelo Gingerelli is available now on microcosmpublishing.com.
If you're trying to make your way in a world of stand-up comedy, you can build your career while enlivening your local comedy community and mutually supporting your fellow humorists, and you can even have fun while doing it. Angelo Gingerly shares his hard-won advice for anyone who wants to create a comedy scene from scratch in a smaller community, carve out their unique niche in a larger city full of professional funny people, or anywhere in between. Lots of good tips here for anyone organizing community events on how to book venues, get publicity, and avoid drama. Also includes great arguments for starting or joining a comedy scene rather than thinking of yourself as a lone wolf and solid wisdom for being an asset to an existing stand-up community. Stand Up and Laugh by Angelo Gingerelli is available now on microcosmpublishing.com. Let's get to our guest tonight who is an ultra-marathoner. He's a comic. He's got albums out. He's a headliner. He crushes it when he goes on podcasts. He's from the Jersey Shore, just like me and my cousins. Uh, I want you guys to give it up and welcome Dan Lamort. Dan, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me, man. That was a good introduction. Yeah, man, I try. I try to be a part comic, part mixtape DJ, part pro wrestling promo (laughs) guy in everything that I do. Um, so I think I think a lot of people that are listening to this are gonna gonna know you, gonna know the name, may have listened to your albums already, may have seen you live already. But let's go. If somebody doesn't know you at all, how do you introduce yourself? What's your history? What's your comedy bio? How do you get to to here? I'm one of those comedians who I think just like, yeah, I'm a comic. You know, there are some comics who love talking about how they're a comic, and then there are some who, if they meet like strangers, will just be like, Yeah, you know, I might do comedy. Then there are some who completely lie. I'm the one who just says, Yeah, I'm a comic, then I don't go much more into it. But I guess my, my overall story was, you know, I grew up uh, in down the shore in Jersey as, you know, baseball's pretty big down here. Grew up a relatively decent baseball standout at St. John Vianney High School. Uh, became a college baseball player. Very famously blew out my arm, my first ever game as a true freshman, opening day of the NCAA season. Blew out my arm, got Tommy John surgery. It did not go well. And I started telling jokes uh, a few months later. And that was kind of, the start of what's been life ever since what i guess is this chapter of life although like you said the ultra runner in the beginning that's kind of a, a new chapter yeah i want to get to that i want to get to baseball and i want to get to comedy you know, we have fans in all of those worlds right we have fans of of college and high school baseball listen because of course mike w- was a really good high school and college player played on the little league world series team back in 98 99 and no then, uh, way yeah man it's, it's funny if you go in any ice cream restaurant ice cream spot or pizzeria in tom's river his 12 year old picture is up there for being <laughs> a part of that team so um, he was on the team with uh frazier yeah yeah that's so um, cool yeah i it, met frazier one time uh, at, at, i've been lucky enough to have some friends still in baseball and i met frazier Last year, I believe, or two years ago. Such a cool dude. He seems like a pretty nice guy. I've never met him, but anything I've ever heard about him is he's a pretty, pretty good dude from what I what I understand. Yeah, yeah. It's uh baseball players tend to be relatively cool people, I think. Yeah, I, I want to get to that in just one second. And of course, I do stand up and I'm a runner. So you, you kind of hit all the all the things we do with me and my cousins. That being said, were you in the dugout? Were you baseball's a great game? It takes an incredible amount of skill, obviously. But there's a lot of downtime, right? There's a lot of time in the dugout. There's a lot of you're pitching on Wednesday. You got to kill time until, you know, 7 o'clock, whatever, when the game starts. Were you always the funny guy on the team? Like, were you a thorn in your coach's side because you were always cracking people up? Or what were you like on the field? You know, it's, it's funny. I definitely go back and I think about that, especially in the college years, because when college came around, I was pretty much singled out as, a, as the number one guy out of the bullpen. So I, became a, I went from being a starting pitcher in high school to a bullpen pitcher, which, again, is even just more time to kill. 
And when you're a bullpen pitcher, you're killing time away from your team because you're down in the bullpen. <laughs> so you definitely have some more leeway to make jokes. I definitely was someone who I did impressions. I told jokes. I, I definitely was, I, I, I won't say I was the funniest on my team at all points, but I was definitely known as like a class clown. I regularly would have to run polls at games in high school uh, or have to run at practice because I got in trouble in class. I was always the class clown at St. John Vianney. I was the class clown before that. I mean, my whole life, there's pictures of me dressing up as a clown as a kid, you know? I, <laughs> it, it, it re- literally, clown. yeah, like I became obsessed with the circus at a young age and like I went through phases of dressing up like a magician, putting on a show, dressing up as clowns, putting on shows. I became a rapper when I was younger, put on rap shows. So my whole life is not only, not only has it been humor, but it's also just been the performance aspect and, and enjoy. I don't know if it's enjoying having eyes on me, but it, it's never been something that has made me feel bad. I don't yeah. hate having people look at me. Right. And honestly, the two pursuits you've had so far before running baseball and comedy, you really, I, it's a really uphill battle if you don't like all eyes on you in both of those those things, right? Like baseball is a team game, but so much of it is individual. And when you're in the well, especially box, when you're a pitcher, I mean, I was like I said, I was a pitcher, and as yeah, that's that is the it's a team game until you're the only one alone on a mount, and then right. every mess up comes from you. And that's kind of there's a lot of relation between being a pitcher and stand up because you can't blame anyone else when things go south. I mean, you can blame a bad defense, you can blame a bad crowd, but at the end of the day. If you didn't deliver the way you know you can deliver, it falls on your shoulders, which I always enjoyed. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, holding yourself responsible and kind of fixing your own messes and creating your own success. Right. I, I would say, too, as far as I, not a lot of great athletes turn to comedy, I would say. But baseball, because <laughs> of the amount of the amount of downtime you have to joke around your teammates and then in running, the amount of time you have to just be in your head when you're running and think about closures and punch lines and different ways to word things. I say those are two that may be produced by maybe the funniest people, just because you, you have the time to do it in a way, if you were do, you know, doing wrestling or football or something like that, you might not be able to. Yeah. There's a, there's a good amount of zone out time. You know, it's funny. People will be like, I don't understand how you could run for so long. They're like, what do you think about? And I'm like, what don't I think about? I think about everything. And that's the point. Are I just you- have uninterrupted flow of thoughts. So with that being said, do you listen to headphones when you run or are you strictly in your head when you, when you go on these 40 mile runs like you do? When I started running, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the, the full story of it. You know, I was a very heavy person, lost all the weight running and whatnot, a uh, mix of other things. In my early years of running, and I've only been a runner for a year, half, two years now, I was a headphone guy, you know, the shockwave he- headphones. I, I love them, the bone conducting headphones. Nice. Um, I really enjoyed running with music for a while, even on trails. And then I I had my first injury that I had to take some time off for running. And when I came back from that injury, I had taken about four months off. I I started running without headphones and I just fell in love with it. I mean, every now and then I'll do something called earn your headphones, which is like, if I do decide to use headphones on a run, I'll have to earn them. So say I'm going out for a 20 mile run. I'll have to do 10 miles without the headphones. And for the last 10, I could use them. Nice. But like I ran my first ultra marathon a month ago to the day, exactly uh, March 27th. And for those 40 miles, I, I put on headphones at the 20 mile mark and I took them off by 21 miles. Wow. Okay. I just really enjoy, uh, I don't know. I, I, I have a new appreciation for no music. Yeah. I, I go back and forth, man. I've been a runner for about 20 years now. And, uh, 
I, there's days where I really want to listen to a podcast or an album or a playlist or something. And there's days where I just want to completely be by myself. But race days, I always go no headphones. I think there's enough other stimulation at events where you don't need it. But uh, training runs, I kind of go back and forth with it. So that be let's go Absolutely. back. Let's go back a little bit. Um, you get the Tommy John surgery your freshman year. Do you ever go back to baseball, or is that a, a wrap immediately for you? So I was I went to a school called Felician University. Uh, not the best school, but a very good baseball team. The uh, top Division two. There was very little requirements uh, expected of us in the classroom which was an appeal for me, despite being a smart kid in high school, I had started to get in some trouble. My senior year of high school, I got arrested for selling weed, this and that. And I lost a few scholarships. So Felician just became the place that it was in state. The coach knew me since I was a kid. He wasn't going to care about my past. It seemed like a good fit. And within a year, you know, I, before the season had even started, I had kind of started talking to the other freshmen about transferring out. I was thinking about going to a division one school, transferring out. Uh, I had had some good progress in the off season, I was also considering uh, dropping out of school as a whole and becoming a Marine. And then I get hurt. So that kind of put the Marine thing off to the side. And I'm like, I'm injured now. I, at that point, I thought for sure I was coming back. But I knew that if I was hurt coming back, I wanted to be closer to home. I didn't want to be a Felician. So I dropped out of Felician. And I went to Mercer County Community College, which was not the closest community college. Brookdale obviously would have been the closest. I'm a Manalapan. But Mercer County Community College has, I don't know about to this day, but at that point, this was 2014, had one of the best baseball teams in the entire country. So I went there and it became pretty apparent. So that was the year after Felician. This would have been my sophomore year. I was still coming back from the Tommy John surgery. I wasn't even throwing yet. And it was becoming pretty clear that my arm wasn't healing the right way, even though I, I had had my surgery done by the Yankees doctor. I was at a great training crew. Uh, became clear it wasn't healing the right way. And I had already started doing stand-up. So my love was starting to drift away from baseball. And we had a, one really tough practice at Mercer County Community College where, funny enough, the coach actually told us to run, I think, like five miles. And I was like, and I went up to him and I said, I quit. I said, I told myself the day baseball stops being fun, I'll no longer play it. And I said, today, baseball stopped being fun. And I, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Yeah, I, 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 I like someone with that kind of conviction. You had a very clear idea when it was going to be over. It, it came to that. You moved on and, and, and jumped into comedy. So that kind of leads into my next question. How do you go from playing baseball, and I'm assuming going to class at Mercer County Community College, to doing mics and shows and, and jumping in the game? How does that happen in, in Mercer County? Well, honestly, it was, it was a really good transition for me because so when I decided to stop playing baseball, I also made the decision to leave Mercer. Uh, pretty shortly after because one, it was far away from home. It was like a 40 minute drive. And two, my, I don't, I, the sad thing was, you know, hindsight 2020, I was a smart kid. I did really good on my SATs. I did good in high school. I was an AP student. And then academics just eventually took a back seat. And I was like, well, baseball is what it is. And, and then, you know, in that time frame, right, when I'm recovering from Tommy John, I'm starting to do stand up. And I'm starting to realize that there's money to be made in comedy much quicker than baseball. Right. Uh, but I guess to answer your question, how did I make the jump? Uh, it was an easy jump because when you're a college athlete, that's 24 seven, you know, that's a few lifts a day. That's practices, that's study hall. So for me to jump into something like comedy that very much required my undivided attention, it was almost like I didn't give my mind the chance to, 
to get down because realistically, I, I always knew I was funny. I wanted to do comedy maybe, but I didn't want to stop playing baseball after one year. It's not like it was, it wasn't fully my choice because my arm wasn't healing. And right. to compete at a level like that, you still want to be able to throw hard and locate. And those things were becoming clear that it wasn't looking good. So I, I, for me to jump into something full time so quickly, it was easy for me to evade depression. And I guess I, I was driving into Manhattan. That's what it was. I, I did my first ever mic in Kenilworth, New Jersey. Gordon Baker Bone used to run a mic at 10th Street Live. 10th Street Live. Rest in peace, uh, 10th Street Live. Uh, I did my first ever mic there. And I bombed really bad. It was awful. They left me up there for like eight minutes. It was terrible. And I was hooked. And the next week, my dad owns a deli in the city. So I was working with him. And after work at the deli, I would take the train to Eastville and do the mic at Eastville. And I remember doing a mic at Eastville and doing very well. It was my first ever mic in the city. It was my first mic at Eastville. And someone who's now a close friend of mine, a comic by the name of Vince Chang, was the host of the show. And he pulled, my dad would come to mics with me. And my dad was at this mic and he pulled my dad aside and he said, listen, he, I hadn't dropped out of college yet. He goes, if he wants to drop out of college to do this, you should let him because he has chops on stage that I really haven't seen someone this new have. He's like, I really think this is something he should develop. And just that boat of confidence from him was enough to, to kind of move, get the gears going. He set me up with a guy who was hiring Barker's so then I immediately, within the first few weeks of comedy, became a barker. So I'm outside barking for stage time, you know, at the Village Lantern, at different bar shows that this guy was producing. And that guy then set me up with the New York Comedy Club. They're, they had just sold to Emilio, who's the, the owner now. He had just bought the club and was looking to hire a street team, and he wanted some comics. So I got put in with that. So within the first few months of comedy, I went from being an open micer to – now I'm barking for shows and I'm selling tickets for the New York Comedy Club. And in turn, they're giving me stage time every night at their club, which they had just taken over. So uh, I became a guy who, who, quite honestly, bypassed the mic scene. I, I don't look back on that decision fondly because you miss out on a lot of the comics that are in your class that you would grow close to and become friends with. But I immediately went to just become a ticket salesman and barking. I mean, dude, I was waking up. 6 a.m. every day, heading to Staten Island. I, I worked out a deal with the guy at the Staten Island Ferry. He'd let me leave my car there for a few days for $7 in the lot. I'd take the ferry into the city. I'd sell tickets till 7 o'clock at night. Then I'd go do my spot at New York Comedy Club. Then I'd go over to the Village Lantern. I'd bark for those two late-night shows. And then my dad, like I said, owns a deli in the city. So I'd take the train to his deli, and I'd go to the storage room, and I'd sleep on the washing and drying machine in the storage room. And I'd wake up the next morning and do it all again until I needed to go get my car back from Staten Island. Dude, that, that's a great story. And actually, it kind of answers my next question was going to be your when I heard your albums, I didn't realize how young and new to the game you were, which I think you made phenomenal progress in a very in comedy years, a very short amount of time. We can agree. Yeah, on it's that, funny. Right? You say albums in my life, in my brain. I just say album because that first one doesn't exist to me. Oh, the really? The first time I had ever done an hour, dude, that was the first the first time I ever did an hour on okay. stage was my first album. Hey, real, real quick aside to that that first one was self-released correct the second one's on a label is that right both are actually labels the first one was a smaller label called on tour records the second one is where i went to a bigger label called comedy dynamics but yeah gotcha. both were released through labels okay cool i'm gonna run an idea by you and see if you agree with it. it's kind of a comedy sports analogy 
you said you bypassed the open mic scene largely and you weren't happy about it, right? Would you agree getting good at open mics to be good at shows is almost like getting great in a weight room to be good at baseball? There's some correlation, but it's not really apples to apples. Because I always feel like it's not apples to apples. It's like how in baseball, I was a cage monster. You know, I was yeah. a pitcher, but you put me in the cage and people be like, who the hell is this kid? This kid's dropping bombs. Then you put me on a field and it doesn't translate. But some yeah. of those cage monsters, it does translate. Yeah, I, we, so Ryan, I'm, I'm big in, in Asbury Park, Long Branch, that part of Monmouth County, right? And a lot of our shows are like the punk rock bars, the heavy metal bars, those kind of venues. And I feel like that's just so such a different crowd. And what hits with a room full of comics is so different than what hits with a room full of regular people. Um, I think you should definitely do mics. I think there's definitely a value to getting better and comfortable on stage. But I almost view it as like two different things at this point. Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. Two very different things. For me, the reason that I regretted not doing as many mics is is because of the camaraderie, yeah, which you. goes into the overall, you know, my overall story as a comic is when you go through the shit at those mics together with these other comics in the city, that becomes your classic comic. So these are the comics you come up with. These are the comics you hang out with. It's really important to have your core group of friend comics and, and your class I didn't have that. I became this guy who people just started seeing on shows and then not to jump around too much, but to, to pertain to this point, I think it was only two years into comedy where I was given an audition at the comedy cellar and I passed. And for a year I worked the comedy cellar. I, I stopped working there after that year. Uh, I do think this is the year I get back in it seems. But so I went from being this guy who was selling tickets, barking, I didn't have my own group of comics that I was really friends with because I didn't do mics. And now I'm suddenly on the lineup at the cellar at 21 years old. And people are like, who the hell is this kid? So instead of having any core group of comics to lean back on and talk to about these anxiety and struggles, every room I walked into, I was almost being judged before I even got into that room. Yeah. People had this, this uh, opinion of me before they met me because no one knew me. No one knew me who I actually was. They just saw me around. And I always regretted that because I, those years, that year at the cellar, uh, everyone was like, wow, that must have been so amazing. You, you were the fastest, youngest to get in, blah, blah, blah. It was hell, man. It was hell on my mental health. It was hell just in life because uh, I started having comics hate me for no other reason outside of what I had done. Right. Yeah, that, that's crazy, man. That's a, that's a side of the game people don't really talk about a lot. Everybody would look at a 21-year-old just flying up the ladder like that from the outside of comedy. Oh, that's amazing. But then on the inside, you definitely do some hate and some just people. Yeah, they, really they hate success. you for it because you're moving quickly. And it's like, if I could have just told them, like, guys, hold on for a year. My career is going to come to a screeching halt. Don't worry. But right. <laughs> well, dude, what, one thing I always I say about almost all aspects of life is, man, and, and to use a cliche we're going to talk about in a second, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. There's some people that cross the first five miles and then they, they fall off the next five and then they pick it up again the next five. Um, and I find that just every, at work, career, family, school, everything, um, it's, it's a long haul, man. You were lucky to have a great first couple of years. And I, I can see you're going to have a couple of good years coming up. Uh, you just got to you know, wait this pandemic out and stuff like that. So that being said, when does running happen? When, does that, when do you decide I'm going to start running 40 miles at a clip? Okay, so it kind of ties in. So I guess this comedy cellar thing happens. I'm 22 years old when I get in the cellar, maybe a little younger, 21 and a half about. Um, uh, so I get into the cellar. I stopped working there after a year. So let it be known that along this time, 
So I, when I stopped playing baseball, I weigh 190 pounds. Roughly, that was my playing weight. I gain, uh, I gain weight after the surgery because I'm not working out. I gain weight doing comedy. When I start to go on the road, I gain a little bit of weight. And I definitely get chubby. I get fat. But it was, it was the depression that kind of came after the seller stopped using me after a little while. And, and then I kind of felt a little bit alienated from the scene, whether it was in my own head or, you know, you kind of, there are a lot of comics who their lifelong goal is to be a seller comic. And here I am, 20, 22 years old, 23 years old, having achieved that and lost that goal. So you're kind of sitting there with your hand, with your hands over your head, like, what the hell do I do next? And uh, within a few months after that moment, I had taken my weight up to 354 pounds. It was the day after Thanksgiving of, I don't have the day, I guess this might've been three, four years ago. And I was in the hospital. I was 23 years old in a hospital bed the day after Thanksgiving. I was having real bad pains on my right side. And uh, they pushed down on my right side. I saw stars, started hysterically crying because of the pain. It turns out I had had such an enlarged fatty liver that it was actually protruding out that when they pushed on my stomach, they were actually able to push into the liver. So that's why they were hurting it so bad. So I was kind of told, like, listen, man, you're 23. You weigh 354 pounds. You have fatty liver disease. Uh, you need to lose the weight or we don't know how long you're going to live. It was pretty much put that frank to me. It was like, hey, you're not dying, but you are on the path to who knows if you make it to 30. So uh, my family had run a few different of the weight loss surgeries past me. And I remember looking at my dad because my dad was kind of always the dude who was in my corner with baseball. He was my coach. And he was like, I think you have one last real shot at weight loss in you before you go and do any of these surgeries. Like you were a college athlete, you, you could do this. And I kind of felt the same. So I was on a trip to Los Angeles and I started hiking there. And when I got home from that trip, I turned the hiking into a jog around my block. This was probably a year and a half ago. I'd already lost some weight because I had cut out gluten. So I, I took off probably 70 pounds before starting running. So I was probably 280. And then at 280 pounds, roughly, man, or in that area, I started jogging around my block in Manalapan. And it just becomes beat yourself each day. So the next day, just try to go a little bit further. And the next thing you know, I'm doing four-mile runs pretty regularly, which to me, I was happy with. And one day, someone shared this interview with me of a guy named David Goggins. I had been told about David Goggins for a long time. I'm the type of person that if you tell me to do something, I'm not going to do it. I'll have to find it on my own. I don't like being told what to do. Uh, so one day I was listening to Rich Roll's podcast and he had David Goggins on and I'm on my way to Spring Lake. I would run the boardwalk every now and again in Spring Lake, New Jersey. Like I said, never run more than four miles. So I'm listening to this guy Goggins and I'm liking him and he's got this 40% rule to the third. I think it's the 40% rule that when you feel like you're done with a, with a run, like you feel like you're at wits end, your body has actually only reached 40% of what it's able to do. You still got 60% left in the tank. That's the gist of it. Mm -hmm. So I hear that and I'm like, that's interesting. But again, I'm skeptical. I'm still a heavy set dude. I'm like, we'll see, you know, he's a crazy Navy SEAL, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to do this four mile run on the boardwalk of Spring Lake. I drop my water bottle and lose it maybe 10 steps into the run. So I'm like, man, I, I, I should just quit this run now. I need my water. But then I hear that Goggins thing. I'm like, you know, 40%. So I'm like, Let's see what the human is actually possible of. So that day, I, I, I ran eight miles down the boardwalk and realized, holy shit, I now need to run 16 miles, which I'd never run more than four. 
And I ended right. up making it to a half marathon before having to walk those last few miles back to my car. But it was in that moment that it all kind of it, it came crashing into my head where I was like, wow, I mean, there is something to be said about this 40 percent rule. Maybe the human is capable of a bit more. And then that kind of started my journey into running and, and ultra running from Goggins. I started discovering other ultra runners, specifically a female runner by the name of Courtney DeWalter kind of became my goat, my inspiration. And I would listen to any interview she had. I'd watch any ultra running documentary. Uh, I think I've always been an extreme person, so I never felt a draw to marathoning. I did feel a draw to ultra marathoning because I was like, this is a pretty crazy thing that these people are doing. And that was it, man. I, it kind of, I don't remember when the decision to run the first ultra came. I don't remember the thought process. It, it, the first ultra I had signed up for is not the first ultra I ran it the pandemic canceled the first one. Then I tried to put on a second one and I got hurt. So then ultimately ended up at this one in March, but it was really just this. It started as a thing to lose weight and it very quickly became so much more than that. It became, you know, kind of a way to regulate my thoughts, my mental health. And it did help with the weight. I mean, the weight just started to kind of fall off at that point. Yeah. Yeah. If you're burning that many calories on your training runs, it's, it's a, good consequence of that kind of training right? you almost can't avoid it the other thing i was going to say i like i really like that you said i decided to run my first ultra marathon right because my favorite race every year is new jersey marathon there's about two or 2500 runners complete that every year and le the last time i did was 2018 and i had this thought as i was running oddly enough through ocean grove on um, that area the only decision that everybody made that runs a marathon is they're going to run 26.2 miles or more in ultra marathon mm -hmm. every other decision is different like people eat differently drink differently wear different shoes train differently every how much sleep they get varies the only decision everybody makes is i'm running this distance today right and once you make that decision everything else is almost details if you decided you're going to do it would you agree with that absolutely i mean that that's the the only the the only decision everyone makes is to run that race and i guess ultra runners they also make the decision to be crazy people but yeah, well, you know, <laughs> that's what I learned after my first ultra run is it is an interesting community. Oh, I want to get to that in one second, but also would you agree that as part of, we don't really, most people do not recognize their full potential. So at some point, some people think running a 5k is a crazy endeavor, right? Then people, why would you ever run a half marathon? That's insane. And then we're like, well, why would you run a marathon? That's no one should run 26 plus miles. And then people now are running 40, 50, a hundred mile events. And we're like, All right, what's next? Like, is there another is what's the real human capacity for distance? Cause it's, it's not 26.2. That's a joke in the, in the indoor, in the endurance world. Now, um, tell me something. Yeah, about I mean, those especially, and those people don't understand it. Now, what I've learned, what I'm trying to learn more and more now is that to those people, like the amount, like the amount I get off oh, 40 miles, I can never even run 40. I hear this a lot. There are a lot of people who are like, you're running from something. You just picked up another addiction, this and that. And it's like those people, will never understand it. And I get, and I don't think there is even a proper way to communicate it because there's two people out there. There are, you can put on an ultra running documentary like I did. That was my entrance into it, right? There's a countless amount of free ones on YouTube. Almost every ultra marathon, when those people hit the finish line, right? There are tears in their eyes and they're coming from a place of not sadness. They're coming even from deeper than happiness. And I, I remember seeing these people running and hitting that finish line and, and instantly being brought to tears. 
And I would see those tears and sitting on my couch, I would say, I want to feel what they are feeling right now because I know this whole hour-long documentary, this whole interview pod, they cannot put into words what they're feeling in that moment. And that's what I want to get to. There's that type of person, which is me, and then you have those other type of people who will be like 40 miles. I couldn't even drive 40 miles. You're running from something. What are you avoiding this and that? There's two different types of people. And I, I think it, there's something really to be said about the person who sees that and says, I want to feel that. Because those I, are the people I like to be around. A hundred percent, man. I love being around creative, driven people. And the older I get, I'm a lot older than you, I have less tolerance of people that don't get it. I don't know if that's a good thing, but I, I don't even want to have the conversation of, why would you try to do this thing that sounds impossible? Because I want to do it. I want to have that elation and joy at the finish line or proverbial finish line, like you just said. Um, yeah, when they say, why do you want to do it? It's like, it. why don't you well, want to push yourself out of your comfort zone? Why are you so okay staying where you're well, comfortable? Why wouldn't you want to do this? And I'll, I'm going to throw this out there and see if you rock with it or not. A lot of the people that say you run a lot because you're running from something or you go on stage because you don't have to deal with your problems. I those people most of the time are not crushing it at life themselves. It's not like they're, they're not driven to anything and they're just great at all aspects of life. They're struggling too. They just, they're mad. People like me and you found a way to deal with it. I think. Yeah. I've learned what I've come to learn and what a lot of people have helped me learn is that it, when you lose weight and I didn't, I didn't expect this. People are going to put their insecurities on you so much more than you're prepared for. And that is something I've had to deal with. And uh, it's not always the easiest because some people do it in pretty rude ways and it, it will be an attack on your own character sometimes. I'm, but I'm it's gonna... one of those things that it's like, uh, I, for, huh, there was one saying that I, like when people used to tell me like, are, are you going to lose any more weight? And what I, in my head, I always just used to hear that person saying, are you really going to continue to make me feel bad about myself? Yeah, man, it's, 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 it's incredible to me how much some people don't want to watch you succeed. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think like someone like you should be applauded for doing – like, right now you're crushing two pretty amazing things, right? You're doing great at comedy, which is one of the hardest professions to master in the history of mankind. And then you've kind of mastered your body at this point, right, by pushing yourself further every day and running these ultra marathons. And I don't know how to do anything but but shake your hand and give you a pound and tell you I'm proud of you. But there's other people that are like, oh, what's what's wrong with that guy for doing those things? I don't I don't understand that mentality at all. Yeah, me neither. I guess maybe when I was at my heaviest, I, I was probably the type of guy who would hear someone ran 100 miles and be like, why would you do that? And then I right. think you just kind of have to live it to understand it. It's like this, uh, it was this, the, people don't realize that we could change. And I think that was big for me. It's not even change, like we we're all part of this pretty grandiose unfolding process. We all are meant to unfold as life goes on and, and to learn more about ourselves and through learning more about ourselves that enables us to learn more about those around us, to love deeper. And people don't realize that, that they just see the superficial weight loss. Now he's posting shirtless pictures, blah, blah, blah. They don't actually see all that it's done for life. And if they did do that, I think they'd be more inclined to shut their mouth and actually just hop along and, and run with you a bit. Yeah, man, I, I agree. Now, uh, so you've lost a ton of weight. You've changed your lifestyle drastically in the last year or two. Now, on your, your albums that I've listened to, you make a lot of jokes about your weight. So I'm assuming you're pretty heavy when those are recorded. How has this changed your material and creative process? Because I'm assuming your day-to-day -day lifestyle is much different now than it was when you were recording those records, right? 
Oh yeah, man. It's funny. Cause like uh, there definitely, there became a point where I wasn't losing weight because I told myself being fat was better for comedy. And then I sat down and I really wrote down my jokes and I was like, shit, there's not enough in here about being fat that justifies me staying fat. Okay. And uh, now, I mean, the weight loss was, in my opinion, I mean, it, I guess it's hard to actually say because it would come off as narcissistic, but I, I do believe this is the best I've ever been on stage because I don't feel like I'm doing a character of somebody. I feel like this is the first time I'm actually performing as Dan Lamort. I, I don't feel like I have this fat protection around me, this, this funny fat guy thing. I feel like I'm standing up there being like, hey, this is the first time I've fully been me. Uh, and I've never been more comfortable. I've never had, I feel like I get more genuine laughs, deeper connections, because uh, I, I feel like I'm actually performing as the person I'm supposed to be performing as. Nice, man. And then real quick on these albums, what was that recording process like? How was it securing a record deal? How does that happen this early in your career? And what's the, uh, the creative process like on a special in an album? So I'm the type of guy that always believed if you want to do something, just start putting in the effort to do it. So I remember at the time saying out loud, I wanted to do an album. So then I said, okay, what comes next? And then I was like, well, you need a record label. So then I emailed record labels. I just Googled comedy record labels, found all of the record labels I could get emails for, and I emailed all of those record labels. And then one of them emailed me back and was like, hey, we like this clip. We'd love to produce your album. When, when are you thinking of doing it? So then I picked a date at the New York Comedy Club. The record label flew up. Uh, they actually didn't even record that album because the New York Comedy Club is a great recording system. So they recorded it themselves, and then they handled it. Uh, the, the, that's the one upside. I'd say there is only one upside to having a record label is they do all the distribution for you and whatnot. But outside of that, I've come to realize it's, it's a process one could take on their own. Okay, cool, man. And that's, when's the next one coming out? Do you have a plan for a third album anytime soon? I do. So I actually tried to record one in October during the pandemic at Zany's in Chicago and it was a bit too chaotic, so I didn't release it. Uh, I had the materials there, you know. I definitely have material. I've been touring a new hour. Uh, I don't want to rush it. There is a part of me that just wants to put out the album right away to get it out there for people and also for the financial aspect of it. But my last two albums, I felt like I could have done a better job with. So this one, I think I'm just going to, if the opportunity presents itself to record this summer, uh, I'll definitely record it. It's ready to go. But if I need to just tour the material and hone it a bit more, I'm also very happy with that because I really like what I'm talking about on stage right now. And uh, if I can just put it out there in the best version possible, it's definitely something I want to do. Also, there's other projects in the line. You know, there's a, there's a documentary coming out about my first ultra marathon, and I don't know when that is. And it, it looks like it's going to be a relatively big, big kind of release, and that's going to be probably next year. So there's a part of me that thinks, hey, maybe wait until that comes out, see if any new followers come in, and then maybe try to do an actual special, like a YouTube special like everyone's doing now. Nice. Good good, good idea on that. So to wrap it up, we have an album in the works. We have, hopefully sooner than later, we have an ultra marathon documentary coming out, hopefully sooner than later. What else is next? What else are you doing besides those two things? And let's say between now and the end of the summer, what are we looking out for? 
Uh, I want to do one big show in New Jersey, which is definitely gonna happen. I don't have the ex- I mean, I think right now it's July 9th at the Vogel, which is Count Basie's new theater. So I'm really excited for that because it was always a dream of mine to headline Count Basie, which obviously I would not be able to do because I don't have the fans. So now that they have this smaller venue, it's possible. But real goals, man, I mean, just getting back in the swing of things with comedy, like comedy's back in the city, back in some of the clubs again, which is really nice. Uh, but it's running. I mean, running is it's it's trying to it's hard for me to pinpoint a goal, a specific goal anymore, because if the past few life, years of life have taught me anything, it's kind of like when life unfolds, it could really unfold into some areas you didn't expect. I, I would like to just keep running going and seeing if I could um, kind of find a way to keep mixing comedy and running and whatnot. But if not, I mean, I ultra marathons for sure. I'm doing more ultra marathons this summer. I, I think I'm going to do one in July. Uh, in Delaware, I was honestly going to run a 50 miler next week, but I had a bit of a hamstring injury last week. So I'm sitting off to the side for it. Okay. Uh, I'd like to get an hundred miler in, if not this year, next year. So like, there's a lot of goals. It's kind of just keep it going until the wheels fall off. Awesome, man. And where do we find on social media? We're going to become Dan Lamort fans. Uh, Instagram, Twitter at Dan Lamort. My website is Dan Lamort. That's L A M O R T E.com. And uh, that's about it, man. I don't, I don't have any podcast out yet. I'm in the process of me and my girlfriend are releasing one probably in a couple months, which is going to be called till we break up. So that'll be fun. Nice. Cool. Well, man, th- thank you so much for your time. Keep crushing the comedy, keep crushing the miles. And that's going to wrap it up. Hopefully next time we're back at full strength with Mike and Kenny in house. But for tonight, I am Angelo Gingerelli, Mr. Fifth Round on all social media, MR, the number five, T-H-R-O-U-N-D. Me and my cousins, it's a podcast. If you're not listening to the Me and My Cousins podcast, do you even listen to podcasts? Every other podcast is soft like a Twinkie filling compared to me and my cousins. Already on season two, we've had a recap of my epic roast battle with Ghost Harbor Creative with Sean McDonough. We've had the founders of NJ Spots. We've had Tadpole Triple. We broke down the Dark Knight trilogy. We had the guys from Telegraph Hill Records. We had Chris Rockwell, poet, open mic host, rapper, writer, comedian Chris Rockwell. We've had both of the two fit crazies. We've had John Beecroft and Joe Weber from Comics, Cartoons, and Craft Beer. We've had touring comic and ultra marathoner Dan Lamour. We've had authors like Tim Lowe and Steve Poston. And we've had Asbury Park's best photographer, Jeff Cresby. If you don't listen to me and my cousins, what are you doing? Thank <laughs> you.